Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have seen fit to come up with a plan for us to be made righteous through the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. May we rejoice in that. And God, may you give us insight into your word now as we look more into the depths of these wonderful riches that you have given us in Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Last Sunday we started up a sermon series in Romans 9 through 16. Last year, if you remember, we did Romans 1 through 8. Now we're going to finish up 9 through 16 this year. It's probably going to take us about four months to do. Uh, Last Sunday I started with the first half of chapter 9, and today we're going to finish up with the second half of chapter 9. And to be fair, chapter 9 is really one one passage altogether. And the only reason that I split it up is because I didn't feel like having you all endure a one-hour sermon from me. So I do think about you every once in a while when I think about these things. But uh, Romans 9 is really all one unit, and we just broke it up into two weeks. Um, Now, if you were here last Sunday, you remember that we talked about a theological tension. It's It's not a real tension because God knows exactly what's going on. It's simply a theological tension on our part because we have a hard time maybe figuring out the the two sides of the story, how God does certain things and there are certain things that God asks us to do. And specifically in regard to our salvation, how how does that work? Um, Now, I'm not going to rehash everything that I said last Sunday, although if you're interested, that sermon is online and uh, you can just listen to that and hear everything that I said. Um, But I do want to restate my conclusion from last Sunday just because the topics will come up again today a little bit. So I'm not going to dive into this topic again today, but I do just want to give a a brief refresher of what I said. Um, There are two truths in tension. One truth is that uh, God does what he wants to do, that God is in charge, he is the supreme king, and he is the one who elects people for salvation. That is one truth. Now the other truth, and it's sometimes seen to be intention, is that God has given us responsibility for our actions. So that in the Bible, for example, when the Apostle Peter was preaching, he told the people to respond in faith. So there, there could be a possible tension there of what is God doing to draw us and what must we do to respond? And I gave three possible answers last Sunday. Calvinism, Arminianism, and the twist version called Calminianism. Um, and I'm not going to get into all of those again, and I, but I do just simply want to say here at Cornerstone Church, as well as in the Evangelical Free Church of America, our denomination, you're free to land in any of those three answers if, and this is a big, huge if, Scripture drives you to your conclusion. We are a Scripture people here, and we don't come to theology coming up with our own opinions and then trying to have our opinions fit the Bible. What we do is we come to the Bible and let the Bible inform our opinions, inform our conclusions. So that's how we do it here. But again, I do just want to mention that tension because like I said, Romans 9 is all one passage. And I mentioned this tension, especially in verses 10 through 18 that we looked at last Sunday, but it's going to kind of show up again today in verses uh, 19 through 24. Um, But what we're also going to do then, after we look at those verses, we're going to see a couple of really wonderful things that I I hope will bring some some clarity and even some peace to your souls, Uh, some wonderful things that we'll learn about God and uh, and about what he has for us. So we're going to look at the second half of Romans 9 in three parts today. And the first part is election. And this clicker has now 
stopped working again. So Tom, if I could get you, sorry about that. Um, our, our first point today is election, and I want to read for you verses 19 through 24. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who resists his will? But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? What if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us, whom he also called not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles? Now, we all like fair elections, right? Uh, if we're talking about, like, in the political realm, elections, we like it when those elections are fair. Let me show you two pictures. Can, all right, my clicker's working again. Remember this picture? Um, this is a picture from Iraq. Now, I'm, I'm not going to get into politics here today, so I'm not at all going to get into whether you think the Iraq war was a good, deal, good, good idea or a bad idea. But there was a day in Iraq where they had these elections, and it was a very proud day for those people because they had been underneath the thumb of a brutal dictator for a long time. And then all of a sudden, one day, they got to vote. And to, th to them, voting was just this amazingly powerful thing that they got to do. Now, in Iraq, you couldn't just give out an I voted sticker like you can in America because they, they really wanted to make sure in that first election that they got rid of any voter fraud. So what they would do is they would have these people dip their finger into this purple ink as their sign. That was their I voted sticker, was their purple finger. And there are all sorts of these pictures on the internet of people with a huge smile on their face and their finger in the air saying, I voted. Because there was something really great to them about the idea of having a fair election uh, where the process went the way that it should. Now here's another picture. Anybody remember this one? Anybody know what I'm talking about with this one? Hanging chads. <laughs> Hanging chads. All right, you got it. Uh, this is from the year 2000. Uh, our election between uh, George Bush and Al Gore. And I remember vividly that night. Um, <laughs> I was watching that election with a girlfriend at the time, and uh, little did I know that my relationship with her would be over before the election was over, because <laughs> it took like two months or more to figure out who was the winner of this election because it was so close that they had to go, and it was the state of Florida, and the state of Florida was so close. I mean, it just hung on a couple of votes either way. I don't remember exactly the final count. But the way they had to do it was they had to look at these hand ballots, and they had ballots, some of them in Florida, where you had to poke the hole. Remember those kinds of ballots where you had to poke the hole of the one that you wanted? And sometimes people didn't poke it as clearly as they could have. So they got people like this, an election judge, to look at these things with a magnifying glass to try to figure out the intent of the voter. Did they really vote? Did they really say Bush? Did they, maybe they said Gore. But it went all the way to the Supreme Court and there was all this debate about the, the hanging chads. But the reason that we did that as a nation is because we wanted a fair election. Because we wanted to make sure that the person who got into office is the person that the people said they wanted to get into office. Now, in our minds, and, and rightly so, we think it's a tragedy when there is not a fair election because we, we want our elections uh, to go the way that they should. So what about God? Is it fair the way that he has elected some to salvation and not elected others? Earlier in chapter 9, we saw that God chose Isaac and not uh, Ishmael. God chose Jacob and not Esau. 
God chose Moses and not Pharaoh. Is it fair for him to do that? I, I think that a lot of people, as they read Romans 9, that's one of the questions that's willing up. And Paul anticipated that question, so he asks it in advance for us in chapter 9. But it's kind of interesting how Paul answers it. It, it's funny. Paul could have settled the Calvinist-Arminian debate like right here, but he didn't. He went a different direction with it. Uh, he answered differently than we might have expected or maybe even hoped. And basically Paul's answer is this. God is free to do what he wants. In verse 20 he says, But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? And there's something really important in the way that we ask our questions to God. It's good to ask questions, right, if our intent is to learn from them. That, that's one way we can ask questions, is to say, God, help me understand what's going on here. But there's another kind of way to ask questions that's not good. And the way to ask questions that way is to say, how dare you do that? Do you see the difference between those two? In one, we're coming humbly before God and saying, God, help me understand. And the other, it's like we're standing as a judge over God and saying, God, how could you do that? So we have no right to go before God and to say that second one, that, that how could you do that? If we take that stance, we forget, like it says here in chapter 9, that God is the potter and we are the clay. Verse 20, show what is formed, say to him who formed it, why did you make me like this? No, he's the master potter and he knows what he's doing. He has the right to make his pottery for his purposes. Now, Paul goes on to remind us in this chapter of some things that might be hard to hear, but the truth is that some people are objects of God's wrath and some are objects of God's mercy. Now, one thing real quickly about that, for those of us who are objects of God's mercy, that should cause us to rejoice in him, to be grateful that he shows us his mercy. But for some people, the question still remains, why would God choose some and not choose others? Let me answer that by, saying, by letting you know what the Calvinist and the Arminian might say. And again, you're free to choose either one of these if the Bible leads you there. Here's what the Calvinist might say. It's simply a matter of the perfectly wise God making his choice. He's the sovereign God and he never makes any mistakes. And the truth is that every single one of us are sinners and we deserve punishment from God. So that's one way you could look at it is that God in his mercy has chosen some and he knows exactly why he's done it and he's God and he never makes mistakes. Now the Arminian might say that God has made his, cho his choice based on his foreknowledge. You could look back at chapter 8 and see that there's foreknowledge there ahead of God's predestination and you could say that God has chosen to show mercy to those who he knew would put their faith in him. And then kind of either way you look at it you could understand that the people then who are prepared for destruction, as it says there in uh, what verse is that? Uh, verse 22. That those are people who have prepared themselves for destruction by their sin. So every single one of us, like I said, is a sinner. And any way you slice it, we deserve punishment or wrath from God. Um, but having said that, and talking about a little bit about this Calvinist-Arminian debate, which I'm done with now, okay? I'm not going to talk about that really anymore. Um, and I'm not even going to tell you which side I land on. Some of you are trying to figure it out from last week's sermon. Um, I'll let you keep trying to figure it out. Um, the issue here, there's a bigger issue of whether we believe that God is a fair judge or not. So do you believe that about God? Do you believe that he judges wisely and fairly? 
See, we all want fair elections. We think it's a tragedy if there's an election that's been rigged or that didn't go the way that it should have. But as you ask your questions about election and how God has done it, because God has done it, God is the one who elects, I just want you to remember that he is the best judge possible. And then also, we don't know all of what God knows. We, we bring a limited understanding to this. Look at this verse from Romans 11. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Is it you? Is, are, are you the answer to that question? I mean, for thousands of years, we've been asked, who has known the mind of the Lord? No, it's not us. God, there are some things about him that are just... Un, it says in Romans 11, uh, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. That's who we're talking about here. And he is the all-wise, perfect judge. And what we know from the rest of Scripture um, is that not only is God just, but he's also the God of mercy. So remember that. As you're thinking about this God of justice, remember that the same God is the God of mercy, the God who forgives wicked sinners like you and me. So I think that's pretty cool, the way that this, this same God who some people would look at him and say how, how could you do it like that is the same God who gives his mercy to sinners like you and me he's the God of glory and all that he does is glorious now on that note Romans 9 moves in an amazing direction next we've seen hints of it already um, in Romans 2 we saw that God's patience and kindness are meant to lead us toward repentance uh, so according to Romans 9.22 then, when it talks about God's patience, his patience is for a purpose, to make his glory known. And remember, God is the master potter. So he is doing wonderful things. He, he is the best artist. I mean, you look at the creation and you realize that God is a wonderful artist. And then you think about us as the clay. And you think about how God wants to shape us. And, and there's, one, there's lots of potter images in the Old Testament uh, but one of them I want to call to your attention is in Jeremiah 18, where God says to Jeremiah to go and look at the potter. And he, he looks at the potter, and there's a, a, a pot that is marred. But what does the potter do? He takes that marred pot, and he reshapes it as he sees best. Now, if God is like that potter, it's amazing to think of what God can do to reshape us, to make us who he wants to be. So we see this picture of God... Um, yes, he's the judge, but also he is the God of love. And yes, he's the God of wrath, but also he's the God of mercy. So Romans 9 now makes a, a, makes a shift. We've been talking about God's wrath, but now it's going to talk about God's love. And that's my second point today. And I want to read for you verses 25 to 29. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people. I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And it will happen that in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the Israelites be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. Left to ourselves, we would have just been objects of wrath. But God came in with his love. Now let me ask you a question. How far would you go to save a loved one? What, what would you do, like physically speaking, if you had to save a loved one from danger? How far would you go? Or how much money would you spend? Or what would you do to rescue one of your loved ones? 
we've got a fun story in our family of this. Um, we were on a family vacation at a lake, and it was early in the morning, and we were all down by the lake on the beach. I was still in my my uh, clothes, my jeans, and my shoes, and a bunch of us were throwing rocks into the lake, um, standing on the beach throwing rocks into the lake. But just behind us, there was this probably like some sort of man-made retention pond, but we called it a swamp because it was filthy looking, it was covered with green stuff. And so here I am, I'm, I'm standing this way and I'm throwing my rocks into the lake, and then I hear this big splash behind me. And the next thing I hear is Christine screaming, Eric! It was Lydia, she had fallen into the swamp. And for some reason, my first reaction was to, to take off my first shoe. But then I thought, that's my daughter. I'm not going to waste the time taking off my second shoe. So I just jumped into that swamp, and she's, she's floating face down in this green filth. And I, I, I picked her up out of there. Now, it was fine. It was no problem. It, was, it really wasn't a, a huge act of heroism. Anybody would have, the swamp was only like this deep, so it wasn't that big of a deal. But that story has grown in our house, and now we've added an alligator into it. And my kids all know that... <laughs> This isn't true, but um, the way that the story goes now is that I had to fight off the alligator for about nine hours in order to rescue Lydia from the swamp. But uh, would you do that? Would you fight an alligator to rescue one of your loved ones? You would. You know it. If that's one of your loved ones, uh, you wouldn't just stand by and go, oh, hmm, too bad for them. In the verses I just read, Paul quotes four Old Testament passages from two different books to show us the amazing depths of God's love. Now, just a quick note here. Um, in the New Testament, when they quote the Old Testament, it's a really great practice to go back and read the Old Testament, not just the verse, but the whole context. It'll be much more rich for you if you do that, because oftentimes we get the backstory then, and we see more of it. So I want you to do that, uh, and I'll, I'll show you in just a moment. Uh, but the first two of these quotes show an amazing picture of God's rescuing love. So amazing that it, it almost, almost brought tears to my eyes as I was reading it. I, I was able to fight them off, I think. But I was just amazed at the love of God as I saw it from, from his word, showing the, the lengths that he goes to to rescue us sinners. So in verses 25 to 26, Paul quotes from the book of Hosea. And uh, the, the first homework assignment, I have two for you today. The first homework assignment I wanted to give you is for you to read Hosea 1 through 3 sometime today or this week. A wonderful picture of God's love. In the book of Hosea, God told the prophet Hosea to marry an unfaithful, adulterous woman who was probably even a prostitute. So Hosea went and he married Gomer. And Hosea and Gomer had kids, although some theologians question whether they were even Hosea's kids. They may not have been. They were Gomer's kids. We don't know for sure who the father was. Uh, they had three kids, and those kids were given some interesting names, including Not Loved and Not My People. Could you imagine walking around with, what's your name? Oh, Not Loved. Oh, really? Oh, I'm so sorry for you. But, um, those were the names of the people because this was to be a word picture that God told Hosea to marry this, this adulterous woman because the nation of Israel had been straying away from God. That they should have worshipped God, but instead they chose other gods. So God said, Mary... Marry that prostitute. Marry that adulterous woman. And then the, the kids were given the names of not loved and not my people because by their actions, Israel had uh, placed themselves as outsiders to God's covenant. God wanted to love them, but by their actions, they'd placed themselves outside. So how would God respond? Would he just let them go? Well, no, he pursued them. 
You see, God told Hosea to marry Gomer because marriage is an act of love. And God wanted to show his love to his people in this story. Because even though Israel had strayed, God wanted them back. And it's amazing, as you read Hosea 2, it describes a bunch of the wicked things that Israel did. But then all of a sudden, in the middle of chapter 2, you see God saying, I'm going to bring her back. It's like, there was no repentance. Um, if anything at all, there was the, the wife, Israel, recognizing that things weren't going well for her. But I wouldn't say there was repentance. What we see, though, is the heart of God to bring his people back to him. And in an amazing word picture of this, in chapter 3, God told Hosea to go and show his love again to his adulterous wife. But in order to do that, he had to buy her back. So I want you to picture this scene. I want you to picture a man and a woman. They're married. And then the wife goes away. And the husband knows why she's gone away. She's gone to go and be with another man. And as she leaves, she actually becomes the property of another man. And then God says to Hosea, go and buy her back. So can you imagine what it would have been like for Hosea to go, go find his wife and say to these people there, that's my wife. Can you imagine? I'm just picturing the other people around here just chuckling. You <laughs> see this guy? This, he says this is his wife. This, this person that we've all been taking as our own here. He, this, this is his wife. Can you believe it? Hey, what... What do you come for, sir? I've come to buy, I've come to get my wife back. Oh, you want her back, do you? Okay, well, she belongs to me. You're going to have to buy her back. What's the price? And in Hosea, they name the price. It's uh, something like 15 shekels of silver and some barley. And Hosea says, I'll do it. Can you imagine the the shame, the disgrace that Hosea bore as, as he went to buy his wife back from another man? The wife that had made a commitment to him, now he has to go and and buy her. Now why did that happen? Because that's a word picture of what God has done for us. We each should have known God, but we each had gone astray. And what did God do? He bought us back. How did he do it? By sending his son, Jesus Christ. And the price was a lot more than silver and barley this time around. The Christ was the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus died for us so that we wouldn't have to face death. Now, physically speaking, yes, we may face death. Unless Jesus comes first, we're going to face death. But spiritually speaking, we never have to die again because Jesus Christ died for us. And any who receive him can receive that wonderful gift of forgiveness. Not that we earn. Did did Hosea's wife earn her way back? No. It was the love of the husband that bought her back. And that's God's love for us. In Hosea, there's great redemption. Those who were once called not loved and not my people are now called my loved one and my people. God brought them back. And that God calls sinners my loved one is the best possible news for us. Because we are all sinners. We all had gone astray. God rescued us. According to Ephesians 2, we were all sinners, and at one time, we were objects of God's wrath. So it's interesting, as we think about Romans 9, and we think about objects prepared for God's wrath, that was all of us at one time. 
But in that same passage in Ephesians 2, it says this, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. We were dead in sin, now we're alive in Christ. And according to Romans 5 also, we were God's enemies. How did God treat his enemies? With love. Sending his son for us that we might be brought back to him. So please know that God loves the lost. Whatever your theology may be, please know that God loves the lost. John 3.16 For God so loved the world. And by the way, when the Apostle John uses the word world almost every time, he's not talking about the trees and the rocks. He's talking about wicked people living in opposition to God. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's the heart of our Father for us. And then one other verse on God's love, 2 Peter 3.9. He, God, is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That's the love of our Father who rescues us. His heart is to take wicked, lost sinners and to bring us to himself. It is amazing love. However, Paul goes on to say in verses 27 to 29 that not all the Israelites will be saved. It's only the remnant among them who will be saved. And in verses 27 to 29, Paul quotes two passages from the book of Isaiah to show how God saved some, but not all, of the Israelites. And let me focus on the second quotation from Isaiah 1, and that's your second homework assignment for the day, Isaiah 1. Uh, In seminary, I had a question that I wanted to ask a professor, so I found the right professor, and I asked him, said, what passage of the Old Testament best describes the wickedness of Israel. I was looking for one passage that kind of got it all, and he thought about it for a few seconds, and I think it was one of those Holy Spirit-ordained moments. He said, Isaiah 1. Um, and I think that's what we see, is, is this awful, awful description of a nation that should have known their master, but didn't. They had strayed from him. Um, in Isaiah 1.5, it says, Why do you persist in rebellion? And then a little bit later, God compares Israel to the wicked people of Sodom and Gomorrah. If you know your Bible history, uh, you know the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, pretty wicked. And now God compared Israel to those people. However, um, well, one more thing. Verse 20, God warned them if they kept rebelling that he would send the sword. But then, amazingly, verses 18 and 19, God says this, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Hey, hey, people, let's, let's talk about your sin, okay? What's going on here? Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the best from the land. There's God's offer for wicked sinners to talk about their sin and to have their sins taken away. So in that chapter, God promised wrath for those who continued to rebel, but he also offered mercy for those who would come to him. Now sadly, only a portion of Israel came back. That's what we call the remnant, the faithful of Israel. Within larger Israel, there was a smaller subsection that were faithful, called the remnant. So here's how the story goes so far. God has chosen that some would receive wrath and some would receive mercy. But God loves the lost and draws them to himself. Some come to him, but some don't. 
And then as I said last Sunday, I'll say it again, I think the end of Romans 9 explains it all, and that's what I want to show you now. Uh, I want to talk about faith from verses 30 to 33. What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith, but Israel who pursued a law of righteousness has not attained it? Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, See, I lay a stone in Zion that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now again, setting aside the theological debate of why God elects some and not others, what's clear from Romans 9 is that it has to do with faith. Again, whether that means that that God caused them to have that faith or whether they've responded in faith, whatever, that's not the point. The point is that it's very clear that at the end of the story, it's about faith. And in verse 33, there is a stone. Some people stumble over that stone and some people put their trust in that stone. It reminds me a lot of Psalm 118.22. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. Or uh, it, when the New Testament translates that, sometimes they call it the cornerstone. Uh, that stone is Jesus Christ. To some people, Jesus was offensive. A bunch of people looked at Jesus, looked at what he had to offer, and decided that they didn't want what he had to offer. So they rejected him. But that leads to death. Other people heard Jesus, heard what he had to say, and said, you must be the Son of God, and they believed in him. They put their faith in him and followed him. So Romans 9 leaves us with two groups of people, one who believed in Jesus and one who didn't. And surprisingly, it was the Gentiles who put their faith in Jesus and obtained righteousness. It was Israel, at least unfaithful Israel, that didn't put their faith in Jesus. Instead, they tried to work their way into God's favor, and that's a really shameful deal here. Um, It doesn't look like shame. To the Israelites, if you were to talk to them, they would have said, no, we received God's law, and we are trying as hard as we can to follow God's law. And there was this assumption then that if they could do it to the best of their ability, that God would look down and be pleased with them and would let them into heaven. But that's not the way it works. We could never please God enough. We could never be faithful enough to God. We could never be obedient enough to God in order to earn his favor. The only way for us to come to God is through faith in Jesus. Now again, that's offensive to some people. Some people would rather say, no, we should have to earn it. We should have to try our hardest to get that. But the only way that it works is through faith in Jesus Christ. So, Jesus Christ is the stumbling stone. He is the one that, that some people say, nah, I'm not gonna, I don't need that, I don't need him. Some people assume there's some other way. But look at this quote. This is powerful to me when I read it. It's from John Stott, uh, recently passed away pastor uh, in England. He said, if we could save ourselves, why should Christ have bothered to die? Think about that. If there were some other way, any other way for us to be made right with God, then why did God the Son come down, take on human flesh, and die for us? And why would his loving Father let him go through that if there was any other way for us to be saved? But you see, he's a stumbling stone. Some people look at that message and they say, that's foolishness, there must be some other way. Other people look at Jesus and say, I'm not sure that I would want my life to look the way that he thinks it should if I were to put my faith in him. 
Some people choose to live in the darkness instead of in fellowship with God in the light because they don't think they'd like what the light would look like. But the answer for us, the only way for us to be made right with God is through faith in Jesus who died for our sins. Israel thought they could obtain righteousness through following the law, but that has seemed to be an impossible goal, and Paul says so in Galatians 2.16. We know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So it really does come down to faith. And I want to sneak into Romans 10 for just a moment. We'll get there next Sunday, but here's one verse. Verse 9. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Amen. Well said. That's a Jesus is Lord. That means that he is God the Son. That means that he is our master, that he is rightfully in control of our lives. And the only way for us to be made right with God is to receive him and to give our lives to him by faith. It's the only way. God has always wanted us to respond with that kind of faith. Now, yes, God does want works too. Let's not just throw works out the door, but let's get the order right. Faith comes first, and from faith, from a heart that loves God and wants to honor him, we're supposed to do the things that he wants us to do. It doesn't work the other way. Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Isn't that interesting? Somebody could do what would appear, humanly speaking, to be the greatest work we could see, but if they're not doing it by faith, it doesn't please God. So it's really all about faith. And yes, like I've said, there is some theological tension in Romans 9. On the side of election, God has the absolute authority to do whatever he wants to do. He is the potter, and we are the clay, and we have no right to talk back to him about what he does. But on the side of human responsibility, God calls us to respond in faith. And we're responsible for our actions. We're responsible for our sins. Don't die in your sins, though. We're responsible in the sense that we're the ones who committed them. And God calls us to put our faith in him. So yes, there is some mystery there regarding how God elects, but behind that mystery is the God who loves us and calls sinners back to him. And even though there may be some mystery about how God works it out in his secret counsels, what he's told us is that we are to respond by faith. And that makes perfect sense. Some of these things may remain a mystery until we see God face to face, but what I want to close with today are some things that are very clear from the passage that we just read. So I have three application points, one from each of the three sections. First, remember that God is a fair judge. We may be tempted to think otherwise about him. Um, Some people may not like the idea that he's a judge at all, but he is. Make no mistake about that. But even in Isaiah 1, which, like I said, is perhaps a chapter which shows Israel at its lowest point, even in that chapter we see God's heart and his willingness to forgive wicked rebels. So, yes, God is a God of justice, but he's also a God of mercy, and in his perfect wisdom, he will always make fair judgments. Please know that about God. Some of you might be struggling with that. Does God really love? Please know. He loves, and he is a fair judge. Application number two. Know that God loves us with a pursuing love. Pursuing love to come after us. Romans 5.8. 
But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the lengths God went to for us, to send Jesus for us, to buy us back. And again, can you imagine the shame? I told you about the shame of Hosea going back to buy his wife. What about the shame of God the Son going to his creation? Those whom he created, and they didn't even recognize him. And he came to die a sinner's death, even though he wasn't a sinner. He took our sin upon himself. God doesn't want us to perish. He wants us to come to repentance. So, uh, I was thinking about this. What should we do? God loves us with that kind of a love. What should be our response? We should worship him. In just a couple minutes here, we're going to close with a song that will give us a chance to worship God. To praise God from whom all blessings flow. And then application number three. Our way into God's family is through faith in Jesus Christ. So whatever else may be true about election, what we know is that our way into God's family is through faith in Jesus Christ. Here's how Jesus talked about faith. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. It's ironic. Um, If you were to go around this week and ask people, how do we get life? What, what, What brings life to you. You might hear a lot of answers about people talking about the things that they enjoy, the things that people can get in their own effort. That's not where it comes from. We get life as we give our lives to Jesus. Look how Jesus said it again. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. That is not what the world says. That is not the world's answer to how do you get life. But that's God's answer. Deny yourself Take up your cross daily, meaning do whatever it is that God has called you to do. I, I still don't understand all of what that phrase means, to take up your cross. But what I do know is that it means that we do whatever God has called us to do, even if it's something that doesn't seem appealing to us. But we do it by faith, and we follow Jesus. That's where life is. But it takes faith. See, there's a stone standing right in our way, Jesus Christ. We either reject him or we put our trust in him. And I just urge you, don't reject him. Put your faith in him and continue to follow him, carrying your cross, living for him. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for your amazing love with which you rescued us through your son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus, we thank you for dying for us. Thank you that you loved us so much that you gave up your life and that you rose again from the dead that all who believe in you may have new life as well. So God, we thank you for forgiveness and love. And God, help us even as we still struggle with this theological tension that we don't understand. We know that you understand it, God. But help us to remember about you that you are a fair judge and that you love the world and that our response is to be faith. Help us to live by faith. Help us to live to honor and glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.